You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and today, in what is unofficially the last week of summer, I'm happy to bring you an audio excerpt of Michael Chabon's novel, Summerland. Michael Chabon is the best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, A Model World, Wonder Boys, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Maps and Legends, and Telegraph Avenue, to name a few. His new novel, Moonglow, is on sale November 22nd. And in Summerland, Shabon brings his masterful storytelling, dexterous plotting, and singularly envisioned characters to a coming-of-age novel. Ethan Feld is having a terrible summer. His father has moved them to Clam Island, Washington, where Ethan has quickly established himself as the least gifted baseball player the island has ever seen. Ethan's luck begins to change, however, when a mysterious baseball scout named Ringfinger Brown and a 765-year-old werefox enter his life, dragging Ethan into another world called the Summerlands. But this beautiful winterless place is facing destruction at the hands of the villainous coyote, and it has been prophesied that only Ethan can save it. In the following clip, we hear the author read a scene that goes from Ethan and his good friend Jennifer playing catch with a normal baseball, Jennifer discovers that she's a natural for the slider, and then later has Ethan swinging at head bombs as if they were real baseballs. Audiophile Magazine says of his narration, Shabon performs with the finesse of an accomplished actor, adding the energy and enthusiasm that comes of knowing everything about his characters. As he blends the idea of interchangeability between humans and animals found in American Indian, African American, and European folklore with baseball and contemporary life, Shabon hits a grand slam with this spirited, unsentimental mythology for our time. Here now is Michael Shabon reading from Summerland. Chapter 4 The Middling An unexpected result of Ethan Feld's determination to become a catcher was the discovery by Jennifer T. Rideout of a native gift for pitching. The two friends met on the morning after the loss to the Reds at the ball field behind Clam Island Middle School, which was closer to either of their houses than Jock McDougall Field. Ethan brought his father's old mitt and, in the pocket of his hooded sweatshirt, Peavine's book on catching. Jennifer T. brought an infielder's glove that she had turned up someplace and the baseball that Ringfinger Brown had given her. When Jennifer T. rocked back and let it fly, it came whistling and fizzing toward Ethan's mitt as if it were powered by steam. Ouch! cried Ethan, the first time the ancient baseball slapped against the heel of his mitt, sending a crackle all the way up his arm to his shoulder. It hurt so much that he did not at first notice that he had held on to the ball. Hey! You can throw. Huh, said Jennifer T., looking at her left hand with new interest. That was a fastball, Ethan said. Was it? I'm pretty sure. She nodded. Cool. She waved her glove at him, and he half rose and arced the ball back to her. His throw was a little high, but close enough. She caught it, fingered the ball, then concealed it once more inside her glove. So, catcher, she said, call the pitch. 
Can you throw the slider, Ethan said. I'd like to see if I can, said Jennifer T. I know how to put my fingers. I, I saw it on Tom Seaver's total baseball video. She checked an imaginary runner on first, then turned back to Ethan. He put two fingers down, extending them in an inverted V toward the ground. He was calling for the slider. Jennifer T. nodded, her black ponytail flickering behind her. Her wide, dark eyes were unblinking, and she narrowed them in concentration. She reared back again, her right leg lifting and flexing in a high, jabbing kick, then stepped down onto her right foot, bringing her whole body forward and lifting her back leg until it stuck straight out behind her and hung there, wavering. Ethan saw the snap of her hand on the hinge of her wrist. Her fingers blossomed outward and the ball flew toward him in a long, straight line. At the very last second, it broke abruptly downward, and he just barely got his glove down and under it in time. By the time you got your bat, if you had been the batter, to the spot at which you hoped your bat would meet it, the ball would have long since dropped away. Nasty, Ethan said. He had a sudden protective feeling toward Jennifer T. and urged to encourage and reassure her. This was not because she was a girl or his friend or the child of a scattered and troubled family with a father who was in jail yet again, but because he was a catcher and she was his pitcher, and it was his job to ease her along. The bottom fell right out of it. You caught it real nice, said Jennifer T., and you had your eyes open all the way. Ethan felt a flush of warmth fill his chest, but it was short-lived, for in the next instant there was a sharp snapping in the blackberry brambles that made the edge of near right field such a terrifying place to find yourself during a game of kickball or softball. Cutbelly appeared, stumbling onto the field. He limped toward Ethan and Jennifer T., dragging a leg behind him. His coat was matted and filthy, and his sharp little face bled from three different cuts around the cheeks and throat. On his snout and on the tips of his ears there lay a dusting of what looked to Ethan like frost. The glint of mockery was all but extinguished from his eyes. Oh, piglets, he said, his voice hardly more than a whisper. I'm very thirsty, thirsty and cold. He shivered and hugged himself, then brushed the powdery ice from his ears. I scampered here much too quickly. Ethan dug a half-empty squeeze bottle out of his knapsack and passed it to the werefox. Then he took off his sweatshirt and draped it over Cutbelly's furry shoulders. Jennifer T. had not moved from the pitcher's mound. Her glove dangled by her side, her mouth hung open. Cutbelly tipped back the squeeze bottle and drained it in a single draft. He wiped his mouth on the back of his bloodied arm. Thank you, he said. And now... Perhaps it may be for the last time I'm to ask you to hurry along with me. You're needed. What can I do? Ethan said. I can't fight. I can't play baseball. I can't do squat. Cutbelly sagged and sank to the dirt of the infield. He buried his face in his hands. I know it, he said, rubbing at his long snout. I told them as much my own self, but we have something less than a choice. It may be too late already as it is. He held out a tiny paw to Ethan, who pulled him to his feet. We must cross over now, the other piglet, too. It's unfortunate she saw me, but there's no helping it now. For the first time since Cutbelly's appearance, Ethan remembered Jennifer T. 
She was still standing on the pitcher's mound, a little behind the rubber now, as if to keep something between her and Cutbelly. Her mouth was twisted into a strange half-smile, but her eyes were wide and empty. Ethan saw that she was afraid. It's okay, Ethan said, using his newfound catcher's voice. He's a friend of mine. I tried to tell you yesterday, but... Little people, Jennifer T. said in a thick voice. But you didn't believe me. She believed you, Cutbelly said. Come on, girl. See what you'll see. They leaped across to the summerlands through deeper shadows than Ethan remembered, the frost of the crossing streaking their hair and dusting the brims of their caps. The darkness was only partial, but thick and deep. It reminded him of the false night that had fallen on Colorado Springs during a solar eclipse one winter day back when he was in the first grade. Cutbelly hurried along as quickly as he could on his wounded leg, looking all around him as they went, his bright orange eyes darting from left to right. From time to time, he would stop and motion for the children to do the same with a curt gesture and stand motionless, his long ears quavering, studying the air for a sound they alone could detect. Though Ethan was filled with questions, Cutbelly refused to listen to them or to reply. He would not say how he had been injured or what was happening in the birchwood. Two-thirds of all the shadows you are seeing around you are not real shadows at all, was all he would say in a low whisper. Try to keep that in mind, piglets. They looked around. The shadows twisted like smoke, billowed like curtains, dangled like Spanish moss from the limbs of birch trees. Then they looked again and all was still. Jennifer T. bumped up against Ethan and they walked that way for a while, shoulder to shoulder, holding each other up as they lumbered after the werefox through the silent woods. Great slow wheels of crows turned in the gray skies overhead. Rain was falling all around. And then they stepped out of the trees, into the clearing where Ethan had met Sinkfoil and the other Clam Island farishers, to find that the final lines of the first paragraph of the last chapter in the history of the world had already been written. Too late! Cutbelly cried. Too late! The clearing was filled with gray smoke and hissing jets of steam. The turf was trodden and torn, and the birchwood itself was gone. All the trees had been cut down and apparently hauled away. All that was left of the great mass of tall white trees were splintered stumps and tall piles of stripped branches. The beautiful little ballpark, made from the bones of a giant, lay in ruins, the towers torn down and scattered, the stands collapsed in on themselves. In the midst of the field that had once surrounded the ballpark, churned up in a muddy tumult of earth, lay an overturned vehicle of some kind, a twisted hulk of black iron with heavy leather treads cruelly spiked. Here and there around this ruined hulk lay a number of small bodies. They might have been children, or even farishers, but for their pale gray skin. In all this expanse of waste and wreckage, nothing was moving but the twisting curls of steam. Except... Hey, Ethan said, what's that? Down on the beach, where the Farishers had gone to consult Johnny Speakwater, one final skirmish was taking place. A Farisher stood on top of the great 
driftwood log, while around him crowded half a dozen winged creatures that Ethan recognized, even from a distance, as the same as the one that had grinned at him through his bedroom window. Cutbelly cried out, That's Sinkfoil! The Skrikers are on him! Skrikers, Ethan said, what are they? Ferishers changed by the changer, Cutbelly said. They hate what they are, and even worse, what they once were. Help him, Piglet! What should I do, Ethan said. Just tell me. Cutbelly turned to him, his black-tipped snout quivering, his eyes lit with what looked to Ethan like a surprising glimmer of hope. Search your heart, Piglet, he said. You were dug up by old Chiron himself, the white that scouted up Achilles, Arthur, Toussaint, and Crazy Horse. You've got to have the stuff in you somewhere, Piglet or no. Ethan felt something catch inside him at Cutbelly's words, like the scrape of a match against the rough black stripe of a matchbook. He looked around, something bright and dense and hot kindling inside him. He started trotting at first toward the beach. Ethan, Jennifer T. said. He looked back at her. She was standing behind Cutbelly. Her gaze was as blank and strange as before, but now the crooked half-smile was gone. What are you going to do? Ethan shrugged. I guess I'm supposed to save him, he said. He didn't really believe that he could do it in spite of Cutbelly's words, but he felt he ought to try. After all, it was just a question of saving one Farisher, not a whole tribe. Maybe he could do something to draw them off and give the Farisher a chance to recoup his strength. He was clearly an excellent fighter, much better than Ethan could ever hope to be. Ethan ran toward the driftwood log. Sinkfoil leapt and ducked, thrust and slashed, hacking at a swarm of the bat things with a long, wicked knife. His hair blew back from his head, and his knife arm lashed and flailed and held steady. The sight was inspiring. That was a hero. That was how you did it. Ethan ran up, yelling and screaming, hoping to distract the Skrikers for a moment. Sinkfoil turned and smiled faintly, and then three of the Skrikers looked Ethan's way. They grinned yellow grins, and the bridges of their sharp little noses wrinkled with a rank pleasure that snuffed out the little flame of purpose which Cutbelly's words had kindled in Ethan. They flew at Ethan, scattering themselves around him, their wings jerking and spasming. Ethan saw that the wings were not a part of them, but queer machines affixed to their backs by means of brass-red screws. Ethan ran past them, ducking underneath their spindly legs, and then, when he turned, they were on him. He looked around for something to use to defend himself, but all he could see were the spiky stumps of broken limbs that jutted from the driftwood log. Most of them were much too short to be of any use, but there was one that was longer and nearly perfectly straight. He clambered up onto the log and grabbed hold of the limb and pulled. It made a dry, cracking sound, but held firm. Glad you could make it, Sinkfoil said, and then there was a muffled explosion, and the Farisher cried out and tumbled from the log. One of the Skrikers, Ethan noticed, seemed to have lost its head and was wheeling crazily around in the air. Sinkfoil must have decapitated it just before he himself fell. The Skrikers hovered over his motionless body now, poking it and prodding it with their steel-tipped shoes. Ethan threw his weight against the limb, putting his whole shoulder into it. 
With a great crunching snap, it broke loose and came away free in his hand. It was about the size and length of a baseball bat, more or less straight but knotty and weathered gray. He lifted it and hefted it and gripped it at one end in both hands. It felt good and solid. He swung it over his shoulder and came after the Skrikers that were molesting the fallen Ferrisher. One of them reached up and took hold of its own ears, one in each hand. Its grin grew wider and yellower. Ethan saw that its teeth were made from jagged shards of what looked like quartz. There was a series of ratcheting clicks, a nasty wet sound of ripping, and then the face with the dirty crystal grin was no longer atop the neck at all. It perched on the Skriker's left hand like an old gray moldy peach. The Skriker had removed its own head and was cackling at him now from this weird vantage. The severed neck was tipped with a black ball that gleamed like a bead of wet ink. Ethan recoiled, and then the bat thing reared back and tossed its head at him. Without thinking, he swung his big stick at the head as it spun toward him. Breathe, he heard Jennifer T. call. He kept his eyes open, too, and connected. There was a burst of white flame, a whoop, shot through with a crackle and a sweet, unpleasant smell like burnt cheese. Another head came spinning at him, and he swung, and there was another sharp, blazing whoom. He fought off three more of the head bombs, swinging wild and hard, and then, it seemed, there was a power failure in Ethan's head somewhere. Red and black, blood and sky. Jennifer T. was looking down at him, with the heavy sky spread out behind her, a nasty cut on her cheek. Then, a gamey butcher shop smell, cut belly. And finally, something jabbing at his cheek, cut belly again, poking him and poking him with one of his sharp little fingers. Wake up, piglet! Ethan lay on his back in the doomed green grass of the Summerlands. I'm awake, he declared, sitting up. Thank you for listening. A reminder that Moonglow, Michael Shavon's new novel, is on sale November 22nd and is available for pre-order now. Happy summer, everyone, and talk to you after Labor Day. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.